We're continuing our series in James, and today as we get started, let me just tell you, we're going to be in James chapter 2, and uh, as, we're, as we're turning there, I was thinking about the passage today, and one of the questions that was popping up in my head is, did you remember a time that you actually needed and received mercy? Uh, I, I remember the first time, I was thinking through it this past week, um, I, it was one summer when I was a kid, I was playing outside with my brother, and we decided to play baseball, but we didn't have a bat and a baseball. Um, I don't know why, we just didn't. But we did have a tennis racket and some tennis balls. So me and my brother decided to take turns doing a little home run derby in our yard. Uh, first pitch was a doozy, swung as hard as I could, connected like a champ, and sent it straight into the neighbor's window and broke it right out of the gate. Uh, ruined the game very quickly. And I remember going and telling my mom, hey, uh, mom, we... Uh, we broke a window, and her response was, your dad will deal with it when he gets home. That was not what I wanted to hear. My, my dad was a loud Arab father, um, and Arab fathers don't like to spend money when their sons are stupid and break a window. Uh, maybe no dad's like that. I don't know. But I was not looking forward to dad coming home. I did not play baseball or tennis baseball, whatever we were playing, for the rest of the day. I didn't play much of anything. And I remember when dad got home, I had to go tell my dad, oh boy, that moment, dad pulls in the tri- driveway. And here's what I know. I, I have no defense. I have no excuse. I have, I, there's nothing I can do to get off the hook for this one. I am guilty on all counts, and there is no defense. And I knew the consequences. At least I thought I knew the consequences. I think my rear end knew what the consequences were going to be. That moment of telling him, it was nerve-wracking. And then my dad didn't respond like, my dad normally responded on a situation like that. He didn't respond like uh, the Arab dad that had this loud, he didn't do that. There was no explosion. He just said, okay, I got it. That was it. Like, there was no lecture. There was no, hey, why are you so stupid? It was like, okay. And he went over to the neighbor and told the lady. And uh, she wasn't home when it happened. So she came home apparently sometime before dad did and didn't know what happened. And he, he paid for the window and took care of everything. I didn't get in trouble at all. And that, from what I can remember, is the first time that I remember receiving mercy. Mercy is this awesome thing. It's when you deserve judgment and it's withheld. It's that moment you deserve to get what's coming to you and for no reason at all, apart from the mercy of the person that you've wronged or the mercy of the person who's in charge of punishing you, they show you mercy and withhold the judgment or the punishment. Mercy is an awesome thing. Mercy... uh, Mercy is a powerful, powerful thing. And when you receive mercy, when you really receive it, and when you receive it over and over and over again, when you receive mercy, it's supposed to change you. When you've tasted it and gotten it, when you had no hope and there was no one to save you except for the mercy of the person whose hand you were at, when you experience that type of mercy, it should change you. And if that is true, If it's true that mercy changes you, when you experience real mercy, then the church should be the most merciful people in all the world. The 
The people of the church should be the people who are full of the most mercy. Because of all the people in the world, we've experienced this unbelievable mercy. What we believe as followers of Jesus is that all of us, every man, woman, and child stood guilty. We were guilty and condemned before God. And there was no way we could pay the debt back. But instead of giving judgment, God sent his son to die on the cross for us. He pursued us with love and grace and an offer of forgiveness. He delivers to us mercy, radical, shocking, lavish mercy. He gives mercy. The question that I'm asking is if, if the church is a place of people who have received radical, shocking mercy... What does it mean if we're not a place where other people experience radical, shocking, lavish mercy when they show up here? What, what does it mean if a church is unmerciful? What does it mean about us? What does it say about us if when people need mercy, they show up and, and they don't get gospel mercy, they get legalism or law or guilt or shame on you what does that mean? What does that say about us? Listen, James is going to address this because in the book of James, their pastor, who is James, is writing to his church, this early church. This is probably the first letter in the New Testament. And this early Jewish church has gotten scattered all over the place because of persecution. And James is writing to them to give them instruction on how to deal with the suffering and how to be the the right followers of Jesus as they're enduring all this stuff. And, and out of the gate, we found out at the end of chapter one, James is concerned that, they're, that they are actually doers of the word. He doesn't want people who just talk about it, who look at it and think about it. He, he's saying, you need to be people who actually do the word. And here's what doing the word looks like at the James, end of James chapter one. You care for the widows and you care for the orphans. And you keep yourself unspotted from the world and you guard your tongue. And James is going to unpack that. And at the beginning of James chapter 2, which we discussed last week, this church has an issue. When a rich guy comes in, they show him favoritism and partiality. They're tuned in on his experience. But when a poor guy comes in who's in absolute poverty, they, they disregard him. They push him off to the side. They don't care about him. And James is writing to this church saying, you have to stop that. You're not loving people the way Jesus calls us to love people. We're picking up in that conversation. James chapter 2, verse 8. Let's re- we're going to go through verses 8 through 11 here at the first part. Here's what it says in verse 8 of James chapter 2. He says, if you really fulfill the royal law according to the scripture, and here's that law, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. You're doing well. Say, listen, here's the problem. You, didn't, you weren't showing love. You're not loving people when you, you show partiality in the church. And, and if you're really obeying it, if you're obeying this law that God has given to love your neighbor as yourself, you're doing great. Verse 9. But if you show partiality, if this is what's happening in your midst, you are committing sin and are convicted by the law as transgressors. Here's what James is saying, and we said this last week. The heart of the issue for this early church, which is shocking to hear, is that the reason they were showing partiality, the reason they loved one people more than another, is because they were unloving. They, they did not love. They were not obeying the command of Jesus. And James flat out says it. You're convicted. You're guilty. 
by the law as transgressors. You're, you're, you're violating this thing. You don't apparently seem to be as concerned about it as James is. Look at what he says in verse 10, because he's going to drive the point home a little bit more. Verse 10, for whoever keeps the whole law but fails in one point has become guilty of all of it. James' point is this. He's saying, listen, if, if you try to keep all of the law but you miss one little point of the law, you're guilty of breaking all of it. Now, when I first read that, I immediately was like, well, okay, wait, hold on. Time out, James. Maybe you aren't that way. Maybe like, I agree with that. But in my head, my first thought was, listen, if I'm speeding and a cop pulls me over for speeding, which could happen because sometimes I drive too fast. Hopefully my insurance guy is not watching this today. But sometimes I drive too fast. If I get pulled over for speeding, it would not be right if he said, you know what, we're taking you in for murder. Because if you speed, you're guilty of all of it. Would that feel fair and just to you? That, that, sorry, that was a question. Um, would that feel fair and just to you? No. So here's James, and he's saying, listen, if you break one point of the law, you're guilty of all of it. But, but our legal system doesn't work that way. It wouldn't feel right. It wouldn't be just. It would feel too oppressive and too ridiculous. They're saying, if you keep speeding, then one day you'll kill, per kill a person. So you're going to jail for murder. That, that's not the way that's supposed to work. And he, here's what I think is happening. I think the secret is found in the very next verse verse 11, because James isn't talking about the law of a nation and a Congress who passes law. He's talking about something a little bit different. Look at what it says here in verse 11. It says this, for he who said, do not commit adultery, also said, do not murder. If you do not commit adultery, but do murder, you become a transgressor of the law. Here's, Here's what I think his point is. His point is not saying, hey, if you break one point, it's the same as breaking all of them. His point is this. He says, listen, where did the law come from? He says, he who said don't commit murder also said do not commit adultery. He's saying, listen, it's all from the same person. It's God, your father, who's given a set of commands to us. And he said, listen, I do not want you to commit adultery, and I do not want you to commit murder. Here's the illustration that I think more aptly fits it than my horrible speeding ticket illustration. If I tell my kids, listen, kids, your bedroom is a mess. I want you to go upstairs, clean your bedroom, make your bed, pick up the toys, get it all spotless. And my kids come down and say, Dad, we cleaned the bathroom. You're going to say, that's great. I'm glad you cleaned the bathroom. I ask you to clean your bedroom. Then they go back up and they say, Dad, we did it. And I walk up and I see that what they did is they made their bed, but they didn't pick up their toys. Did they obey what I said? They didn't obey what I said. Because I said, I want you to go up, clean your bedroom, pick up the toys, and make your bed. And if they don't do everything that I said, they disobeyed everything that I said. Does that make sense? That's what James is saying here. Listen, God has given us commands. The same God who spoke this command is the same God who spoke this other command. And when you disobey his commands, it's like disobeying everything that he said. The point is not, did you disobey the command? The point is, did you disobey God? That's what James is driving at. So when he's saying, is that when you don't show love, when you show partiality or anything else, when you disobey that command, the heart of it is that you are disobeying the almighty creator God. It's disobedience, and it drives me to this question for us, because what James is doing here is pretty challenging. What he's not letting his people do is he's not letting them minimize their sin and disobedience. He's not sitting there telling them, listen, I, I know you guys, and I know you probably just had an off Sunday when you liked that rich guy and ignored the poor man. 
You're not like this. It's not who you are. James didn't do that. He didn't let them skirt behind. It was, a, it was a bad day. We just messed up. James didn't let them minimize their sin by saying, listen, it's my fault. I didn't teach you how to welcome people appropriately. I should do a long eight-week series to teach you how to welcome a poor person. He said, it's my fault. No one taught you. I should have taught you. It's not your fault that you didn't obey God's command to love people. It's my fault. He didn't let them blame shift to someone else. He didn't let them say, well, we didn't know. He didn't let them uh, come up with anything else where they changed the standard. Well, we really loved that guy. We just thought if we got the rich guy, he could help the poor guy more. We were really trying to love the guy. He let them pull some stunt where they redefined the command in a way that they could actually achieve it. Listen, one of the things that James is doing is he is saying, Listen, you are not allowed to minimize the commands of God to make yourself feel better. When you minimize the commands of God, and we've been over this before, you're actually minimizing your need for the gospel of Jesus Christ. Every time you do that, every time you're confronted with your own disobedience or your own sin and you say, not my fault, or no, it doesn't mean that, it means this, or no, I just had a bad day, or that's not who I am. Every time you do that, every single time, You're minimizing your need for the cross. And this is a powerful thing for us that James is doing. As their pastor, he's leaning in and he's putting them in a spot where they're gonna have to need Jesus. And he is saying, don't take that disobedience lightly. Church, I wanna ask you today, uh, how do you do when it comes to taking the seriousness of God's commands? How do you do when you consider your own disobedience? Do you take it seriously? When you feel confronted with the word, for whatever it is, do do you just brush it off? Do you ignore it? Do you go away and say, man, I liked how guilty I felt. I'm not going to do anything different. When you get in confrontations in your family with your spouse or with your kids, it shows up that that. You've sinned or done wrong. Do you become stubborn? Do you harden your heart? Do you justify? Do you attack? Do you blame? Listen, one of the things that we have to see is James is putting them in a spot where they're forced to repent and deal with the heart issue. And the heart issue is they are not loving. And it forces us as a church to ask this question. Do we take sin and disobedience lightly? Can't be a people that do that. We can't. We can't can't blame shift. We can't make excuses. We can't minimize. We don't get to redefine his commands. James isn't going to let them do that. They all stand guilty in this situation, and he's going to make sure it goes right to the heart issue. So look and see what he says here about this, because he's going to drive a little bit deeper. Look at the next verse here. Verse 12. He comes up from the other side. Listen, James is difficult for me sometimes, because he just drops elbows. Verse 12, he says this. So speak and so act. Here's what I'm saying. So, so continually speak and con- continually act. Live your life. Talk your talk in this way as those who are to be judged under the law of liberty. Okay, listen. So, so out of the gate, his response is, listen, you're convicted of the laws of, by breaking this law as transgressors. You're violators of the law. You're totally disobeying God. And James' response to them is, I want you to consider two things. I want you to speak and act like those who are going to be judged under the law of liberty. Here's what James is saying. 
You need to live like you're going to answer to Jesus. You may not like that. James says that we're going, we don't like words like going to be judged right there. We are to be judged under the law of liberty. But the Bible teaches that every single one of us will give an account to God. Every single one of us. I told you James is hard. Listen to 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 10. You can flip there if you want or not. We'll have it up on the screen. It says this, and this is talking to believers. We must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ so that each one may receive what is due for what he has done in the body, whether good or evil. See what James just, or what Paul, that's a different person, what Paul just said there, every single one of us are gonna stand before Jesus and have to give an account. First Corinthians chapter three, Paul says that our works will be evaluated whether they're precious like wood or whether they're like, yeah, hold on, I just messed that up. Precious like gold and silver or they're, they're useless like wood, hay and stubble is gonna be burned away. Paul's saying, listen, I gotta present my stuff to Jesus and what was done that's pure and honorable and God glorifying is gonna survive and be gold and precious, but what wasn't, it's gonna be burned away. So you might be asking this question. So you're saying that uh, I place my trust in Jesus. You talk about all the condemnation being gone. Well, what does this standing in front of Jesus mean? Isn't there no more judgment and no more condemnation? Like, isn't this the opposite of the gospel that you've been teaching us for four years here? Well, I think it's true there's no condemnation. That's what Romans chapter 8 says. But listen, it's true that in Jesus we're free from a guilty verdict, that Jesus took that guilty verdict on himself. We get freed from condemning judgment, but we still face accountability as stewards of God's grace. Let me say that, say that again. We get freed from condemning judgment, but we still have to face accountability as stewards of God's grace. Just because we're free from the condemning judgment doesn't mean we don't stand accountable to our King and Savior. That will stand before him, and we still give an account to him. Now listen, we are in Jesus, so we're shielded from a guilty verdict, but our lives are going to be evaluated for the eternal rewards that he has to offer us. We, get, we become a trophy of his grace. And that's why it says that phrase, I think, the law of liberty. But, but here's what's going on for us. We're not just, we're going to answer because of the law. And you may also be asking this question. So I stand before God to be accountable. What am I held accountable for? Well, he says the law of liberty. Let me explain what I think that is. First uh, Corinthians chapter 9, verse 20 through 21 says this. Paul's talking and he's talking about how he, he's trying to reach people. And in verse 20, he says, To the Jews I became as a Jew in order to win Jews. To those under the law I became as one under the law, though not being myself under the law, that I might win those under the law. Okay, that was really wordy. Let me put that in five terms for you. He's saying, listen, when I try to reach Jews, I, I live like a Jew so I can win them. And I submit to these laws, even though I'm not under the law anymore, I submit to these laws. I don't eat pork, I, honor, I do the Sabbath, I dress a certain way so that I can be an effective minister of the gospel, but I am not under that law anymore. Well, well hold on, Five, didn't you just say in James chapter 5, I'm underneath the law of liberty? Look at verse 21. Paul says this, to those outside the law, if I'm trying to engage with Gentiles who aren't in the law, I became as one outside the law. And look at this phrase. Not being outside the law of God, but under the law of Christ. Listen, when we get saved, yes, we get freed from the Old Testament law, but we move to a new law, which is the law of Jesus. 
We still have laws that God has given us. It's the law of Christ. And here's what I think the law of Christ is. I'm going deep on you this morning. I hope you're able to stick with me. Let me read a couple verses to explain the law of Christ. John 13, verse 34. He says this, a new commandment I give to you, that you what? Love one another just as I have loved you, you also are to love one another. You see the command that Jesus gave? To love one another. 1 John chapter 3, verse 11. Here's what he says. For this is the message that you have heard from the beginning, that we should love one another. Listen, it's simple. Jesus is saying, there's a command that I'm giving you. It summarizes all the commands. It's actually two commands. Love God and love people. Love one another. That's the new command that Jesus gave. And then by the time we get to 1 John, he's saying, listen, th- this is the same thing you've been hearing from the beginning. We are supposed to love one another. 1 John chapter 3, verse 16 and 18, he says more. By this we know love, that he laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for the brothers. But if anyone has the world's goods and sees his brother in need, yet closes his heart against him, how does God's love abide in him? Here's the question John is asking. He's still sticking on this. We're supposed to love. So how do we know what love is? Well, love is what Jesus did. He gave us an example by dying on the cross for us. And we ought to also lay down our lives for the brothers. And then he gives an example. If we have stuff and we see a brother in need and we harden our heart, is that God's love? Verse 18, he says this, little children, Let us not love in word or talk, but in deed and in truth. Here's the law of God. Here's the law of Christ that we as believers are under. It's the law of love. And that doesn't mean I gotta say I love you to everyone. He doesn't want talk. The thing that Jesus expects his church to be is love fleshed out to the people right next to you. Real love that has real action. That it actually, when someone is in need, it's there and it's sacrificing and it's costly. Listen, it's a love that isn't just in word or deed or word or, or anything. It's in deed. I don't know why, why my brain is stuck. It's not word or talk, but it's deed and in truth. So here's what I think that means. I think my job as a pastor is to help every single one of you that one day you will stand before Jesus and you will give an account He's going to be evaluating whether or not you were trusting him, whether or not you were loving the way he called us to love. And what I want for you is I want you to stand before him as a holy and pure worshiper. And I want Jesus to see you. Listen, I want Jesus to see you when you stand in front of him. And I want him to look at your life and he's going to see that you trusted in Jesus. And I want him to go, listen, oh man, that, that act of service was awesome. And that honored me and that glorified me. And I gave you the power to do it. But man, that, that's... That's great. That was holy and good and loving. And I want you to hear that over and over and over and over again. I want you to show up with Jesus with a life of loving, God-glorifying service and acts of love. I'm not talking about you're going to stand up and say, here's my church attendance record. I'm not talking about you're going to stand up and say, here's my tithing record. You can do all of those things without love. Jesus is not pleased with you showing up and sitting in a pew every single Sunday and being unloving, rude, and a jerk. That's not the law of love. And you will not stand before him and he'll go, it's okay, you were there every week. Jesus is not going to be honored 
If we show up and say, listen, I listened to every sermon, no matter how boring Fayez was, I endured it. I even pinched myself to keep myself awake because that poor man was killing us every week. You see, he's, I don't care how many sermons you heard. I don't care how many verses you memorized. I don't care how many Bible studies you went to. What I want to know is, were you worshiping me? Were you obeying me? Were you actually doing it in love? Church, I, I don't want you to get in front of Jesus and him look at it and say, all you did was legalism. All you did was attendance and a facade of church. He wants hearts that burn for him and love other people in word and in deed. That's the call. That, that's what's going to happen in church. I, I don't want you to get in front of him and that not go well for you. I don't want to get in front of him and not go well for me. I want to be able to stand in front of Jesus and say, listen, I, I know I'm weak and I'm broken, but this is supposed to be an act of love and worship that you enabled me to do, and I want it to honor and glorify you. Church, this is how we'll be judged. And James is saying, listen, when you aren't loving to the people in the church, when you show favoritism, when, you, when you're not loving to the poor and the needy, when you do that, you're disobeying the command. He said, you, you're going to answer it. You're going to stand in front of Jesus. You need to live and act like you will stand in front of him. But James isn't done. <laughs> he has another one there. Because when I think about standing in front of Jesus, I, I got all sorts of struggles going. Anyone else have struggles going on in your head? Like when I think, oh, so is, is he going to say, Fires, are you really loving to your kids? Remember that Saturday, yesterday, when your kids were acting like raging lunatics at the dinner table? And they're laughing up a storm, but it's driving you crazy because there's five of them. And they're loud and they're hilarious, but I wasn't feeling like laughing. Were you loving then, Fires? Or the time, I, you know, that's a real, I'm not going to give it an illustration to me and my wife. But is, is he going to ask me, were you loving to your wife and do the dishes the other day? Or did you do it out of just being cranky and felt like it needed to get done? Am I going to answer for all that stuff? This doesn't sound gracious. This doesn't sound joyful. This doesn't sound like good news to me. Look, look at what James says in the next verse. Verse 13. Gets a little bit more intense. It says, for judgment is without mercy to the one who has shown no mercy. That didn't make me feel any better. Does that make you feel better? It, it sounds like what he's saying is, listen, we're all gonna stand in front of Jesus and uh, if you didn't show mercy, you're not gonna get mercy. Is, it, is that what you're reading there? But if you did show mercy, you're gonna get mercy? So do I earn God's mercy? Is that how that works? Is all of a sudden James shifts from good news, I'm, I'm judged because of the work of Jesus, to now I'm judged by my acts of mercy. If I don't show enough mercy, there's some type of scale that God is doing here, and I'll give you as much mercy as you hand it out. That's, that's what it sounds like, but I don't think that's what James is saying. Let me, now, I'm not going to get into next week too much, but next week we're going to see this. James is going to begin talking about faith without works is dead. He's going to say, if you've got faith in Jesus but it doesn't produce any change in your life, that is not the real deal saving faith in Jesus. And I think that's the context of what James is doing right here. And so I'll explain that more next week, but here's what I think he's saying. When you've met Jesus and received mercy, it will change you so that you show mercy. And if you are not showing mercy, then I can assume that you have not received mercy. And it's not going to go well for you. 
I've added a lot there, so you should be scratching your head. You're going to have to come next week for a fuller explanation of that because I don't have time to do that today. Uh, but, but here's the point that I want you to say. Look at, look at the last half of verse 13. Mercy triumphs over judgment. I'm going to read that again. Mercy triumphs over judgment. What you and I need more than anything else when we stand before God is mercy. I started with the story about the first time I received mercy, and that's not going to be the last time that I receive mercy. I'll tell you how we get mercy. Here's how we get it. I want you to focus on that. That's exactly what Jesus did for us. Church, I want you to hear this. That is exactly what Jesus did for you and I. He showed us mercy. And he says, listen, if you will place your trust in Jesus dying on the cross for you, and if you believe that he came back to life, then you have mercy. Everything is paid for. Everything is atoned for. You get mercy. And what I need is I need Jesus to take my judgment. I need Jesus to take my condemnation. I need mercy from Jesus. Listen, that reality should be all over us. I just want you to consider. What do you consider that do you smell like the aroma of someone who's tasted and experienced mercy? Like it, there should be a smell on you of mercy is the thing I'm trying to drive at. I, I've got a little portable fire pit in my backyard. Anybody, any of y'all have anything like that? When we go out there, we try to do s'mores, not now because it's ridiculous hot. You'll sweat to death. But I'm trying to get my kids to roast marshmallows and they have marshmallow in their hair and on their face. It's everywhere. It's just an awful mess and it's a blast. We love it. We're making s'mores out there. I love it whenever we do that fire pit. But when we do the fire pit, here's one thing that I know for sure. When I do the fire pit or when I grill in the back, I smell like the fire. I smell like the smoke. It's on me. I have the aroma of that fire pit. Whatever filthy wood we're burning, I probably have marshmallow. God knows where the marshmallow's at when my kids are out there. Like it's in the back of my head and in my shirt. It's insane. They're raging animals. That's part of what makes it fun. But, but when I've been out there and in the fire and near the fire, I smell like the fire. I can't be close to the fire and not come away smelling like it. Church, the concern I have for us is sometimes we don't smell like the mercy of Jesus. And it raises the question, have you been next to and experienced the mercy of Jesus? Is his aroma all over us? We should be masters of mercy. Like the, the question we should be asking ourselves is, do we show mercy to people? Not out of guilt or duty or obligation, but because we've received this mercy and it's just overflowing. Do we show that? Do you show mercy to your spouse out of the overflow of the mercy of Jesus? Show mercy to your kids? Do you show it to each other in this room when you're wronged or frustrated? You show mercy to your neighbors and coworkers. Like I'm asking the question: Would my neighbors describe me as a merciful person? And they, they mess something up, and is my response merciful? I, I hope y'all are good neighbors. That's that's a little sales pitch there. Um, what are the people of Tallahassee? When they think about us as a church, as a people, 
is the thing, man, those people at North Florida Baptist Church, they, they sure are merciful. Do, do the wounded and broken want to hunt us down because they think that we will give them mercy? Or are we known for something else? Church, the point that I think James is driving at is that the church is a people who have experienced mercy, therefore we give mercy. The mercy and gospel grace of Jesus empowers us to give this radical mercy. It should be a, it should be a clear defining point for us as a church. It should, almost, it should be palatable to the people around us. Our city should know that the followers of Jesus are people of mercy. So I'm asking, if we're not merciful, have we received mercy? I think that's the challenge of James chapter 2, verses 8 through 12. So I want to call you to a, a few things of action. Number one, if you haven't received mercy from Jesus, I'm not asking if you've been to church, I'm not asking if you've been baptized, I'm asking have you received the mercy of Jesus through the gospel? You placed your trust in Jesus dying for you and coming back to life. Have you actually received and experienced his mercy? If you haven't, can I invite you today to receive it? He's, he's overflowing. He has limitless grace and mercy, and he will give it to you. If you haven't received mercy, I want to call you to that. Second, is there someone God's calling you to give mercy to? I don't know your family. I don't know how broken your family is. I don't know what your neighbors are like. I don't know what your coworkers are like. But I know our city is lost and needs Jesus. Is there someone you can give mercy to this week? Not in your own power. I'm asking you to have Jesus do a work that enables you to show mercy to someone. Someone who doesn't deserve it. Is there someone who's wronged you? Can you show them mercy? Is there someone who just irritates the living daylights at you? Can you show them mercy this week? My third call to action for us is this. Not only to receive mercy, not only to show mercy, can you take a moment today to worship him for being merciful? I want you to be in awe of the fact that you and I were all condemned to an eternity apart from him, an eternity of condemnation. And he showed us mercy. And I want that to burn in your heart. More than anything else, I want you to worship him for being merciful to you and I. Crazy merciful. I want it to be something that constantly stirs you to worship and adoration of a God who's merciful. So either receive mercy, give mercy, or worship for mercy. Would you bow your head and close your eyes? This is a moment where I want to give you a moment to kind of respond I don't know what God would have said to you today. My question for you is, have you received mercy? I want to encourage you now in your seat, you can just simply ask him to save you believe that he died on the cross, believe that he came back from the dead three days later and simply repent and turn away from your sin and say, God, I need you. I'm asking you to save me. Ask for mercy. 
God put someone on your heart that you've been unmerciful towards. Would you repent of that to God and ask him to give you the grace you need to actually step out by his power to show mercy? Finally, would you just take a moment and think about the mercy that he's shown you? Right in your seat, I just want you to praise him for being merciful. In a moment, I'm going to pray. If you need more, more time to do business with God, our pastors and decision counselors will be down front. We'd love to, to talk with you, to help you in whatever thing God's doing in your heart. Don't leave here today without receiving mercy or worshiping God for giving us mercy. Let me, let me pray for us. Heavenly Father, God, we, I confess that some of these verses are difficult today, but it seems clear that your call to us is that we would be a loving people, a loving people who have received mercy and will show mercy. And it seems clear that you've called us to reflect the gospel of Jesus to the people next to us and the people all around us, that we are supposed to be living examples of the gospel truth of Jesus, of love, grace, and mercy. And God, I'm praying you would show us how to do this. I'm praying that you would enable us to to extend and give gospel, gospel-like mercy. God, I'm praying we would bump into people who need mercy this week and that you would show them mercy through us. God, I'm praying that our, our families would experience mercy through us. I'm praying our spouses and our kids would receive mercy. God, I pray that our enemies would ex- receive mercy from us. God, I'm I'm praying that you would do this powerful work in our hearts that would be strong and potent and only possible if you're in our midst that we'd be able to show mercy to those around us. And God, when we stand before you one day, I pray that we have gospel fruit to present to you that would be honoring to you and glorifying to you. God, I'm praying for the men and women and children who are in this church family, for myself as well, God. Would you work in our midst? God, would you empower us to produce fruit that only comes from you and abiding in you? But God, I'm praying that we would have real fruit to give to you at that last day. That would be glorifying and honoring to you. God, I'm praying you would do that work in us. Thank you for your kindness. And I pray it all in Jesus' name, amen.